Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura. Hey, Sarah. So this week, Laura and I are out in LA and we're literally under the Hollywood sign. Literally, we can see it from our room. (laughs) It's pretty exciting. As part of our adventure out here, we're going a bit deeper on a case we covered in season two, the Wayne Lonergan and Patsy Burton case. This time, we're going to take you on a visual journey of the case with photographer Melanie Pullen. Pullen's photography combines crime scenes and high fashion. The result is a disquieting juxtaposition between two very contradictory worlds. Her photography simultaneously repels and attracts the viewer and is a visual essay on how we glamorize violence as a society. Welcome, Melanie. Welcome. At your beautiful house. Your photography is absolutely stunning. We are sitting in your living room. Surrounded by it. Surrounded by this photography that is, literally, I'm looking at a, a photograph of two phone booths, and there's a body of a woman with absolutely beautiful, like, Chanel slippers on. It's extraordinary. So tell us a little bit about your photography and what inspires you. You know, I was very inspired by true crime, as you both are. For me, it was about one of the most fascinating things because it's the final moment in someone's story, their lives. So you basically have every question. You you automatically become a detective with these crime scenes, visually especially. For me, I was working with the picture, so it it would open the door mentally to these questions, and I wanted to know more. So that's my interest goes into it, almost like a film-type way, detective, film, a little bit. Also, the crazy thing with crime is you're always looking at something you feel like you shouldn't be looking at. And I think that's why I said it almost repels and really attracts me at Mm -hmm. the same time, because I feel like I shouldn't be looking at it but I can't look away. Yeah, exactly. And and I see a full story there. I think Mm -hmm. that's one thing that really attracts me to your art is there's a story. Yeah, and and interestingly, they're all recreations of real crime scenes where the crime files were mostly lost. So I had that same experience with the true crime scenes I was looking Mm -hmm. at. They were so disturbing, but I couldn't look away. And that was... With the work that I've made, I've almost made a movie version of that, so to speak, where you're, I'm recreating that experience I had. So you were drawn to this. We sent you a few cases. 
we contacted Melanie actually through you had done a podcast, Art Laws, mm -hmm. with Alex Sapa and, and Robin Rosenfeld. They reached out to us as well. And this is how we got you basically on which the, on the podcast, which is I suggest everyone listen to it's that. a it's absolutely yeah. great podcast, great episode with you. And of the cases that we sent you, you were really drawn to this, to the Wayne Lonergan case. Indeed, the, of the myriad of cases we've covered, Lonergan begs for optics and a visual spin. 1940s New York glamour, Hollywood good looks, and the scandal of homosexuality at the time. The press went nuts, including one of my favorites, Dorothy Kilgallen, who I also want to say socialized with the Lonegrins. The press further titillated the public by announcing that the circumstances were so scandalous that the details are unprintable. Melanie, I can understand how you'd be drawn to this case because there is something in your photography that's very noir. And we were just talking actually about Raymond Chandler and there's really, Raymond Chandler was LA's sort of noir author. He did The Big Sleep, and it's all very 1940s. And the, the Lonergan case really capsulizes that for me. And actually, indeed, the murder itself had a very Chandler-esque feeling to it. So on October 24th, 1943, the sultry and spoiled heiress, 22-year-old Patsy Burton, was discovered bludgeoned by an onyx candlestick in her luxurious residence in Manhattan. Burton, the daughter of a German-Jewish brewery scion, was a fixture in New York's cafe society. Often seen in her mink and clinging dresses, Patsy had been out the night before with a well-known playboy twice her age, Mario Gambolini. This was 1943, and headlines were commanded by wartime, by Hitler's atrocities, and our war in the Pacific. They were quickly subsumed by Patsy Burton's murder consuming front pages on both New York Times and the tabloids alike. Before we go much further into the case, I, I did want to ask you, Melanie, like, what drew you to this case? What were the things? I mean, that... it's kind of a perfect scandal. You know, you have the incredible wealth. You right. have this bizarre family triangle where her father allegedly had an affair with her husband who murdered her and he's the kept man. So you're just like, what is this? It's so bizarre. And then there's this wealth, this like incredible like society. They were part of cafe society. That's why I kept exactly. hearing like yes. cafe society. And it's like they were the it family at the time, kind of like sort of the it family from what I read. Mm -hmm. They were, this drove them over the edge. But I think there's always that illusion with these types of situations where the general public, they're like, how could this, how could things go wrong? Their lives were so perfect. They had all the money in the world. Right. They had everything, but there were secrets. And we see that so often on Ivy League murders. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that I is, love it. that's almost the overriding theme is everything looks so perfect. Mm -hmm. What went wrong? And looks are so often deceptive. Total. And we're looking actually at a photograph of Wayne Lonergan. And he's he's this like in great shape. He's super hot movie star looks. He's leaning against like this poolside table and just like the cock of the walk. Tell us, Laura, a little bit about Wayne Lonergan and his background. Wayne Lonergan was 
born in Canada in 1918. And he was from a middle-class Irish family, and his mother had severe psychological problems, perhaps even bipolar, although she wasn't diagnosed that at the time, but she had severe psychological problems that made her fairly unable to take care of him. And he got in trouble from a very young age, several stints in juvenile hall, always getting in trouble. And his sexual identity was always in question. Was he gay? Was he not gay? And let's keep in mind at this time, homosexuality was considered a crime and it was punishable. Wayne was exceptionally good looking. And to make extra money, he was a hustler that catered to men, apparently. Some of this is somewhat speculative, but there's enough proof to back it up. And we will post pictures of Lonergan at the time, and you will see exactly what he looked like. He always wanted for bigger and better things. He had aspirations. And in 1939, the World's Fair was coming to New York. And this was a huge deal. I'm not sure today we can really... I'm trying to think of something. I'm going to really com- the Olympics. I'm going to compare it to the Olympics because this was how big of a deal it was. 44 million people would attend the World's Fair over two years. So this was a really big deal. This brought people from far and wide. And Wayne got a job as a bus dispatcher for Greyhound Bus Lines at the New York World's Fair, which was a huge event. And This basically enabled him to meet all kinds of people. And they also had push carts where somebody would run and you you would sit in the back of the push cart. And he was this strapping, young, attractive man. And he operated one of these push carts, which enabled him to meet many older, attractive men. And many people... I don't know how attractive they were. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to assume that. No, do you know anything about the New York World's Fair? Yeah, yeah. It was like it was it. People came from around, around all over, around and and plus like this whole event in today's money cost two billion Mm dollars. And just for perspective, you could buy a hot dog for a dime at the fair, but it, it was just. A they spectacle, built like you know? they, they built basically a whole kind of mini city around it's it. Still it's there? Wild. It's still there. Yeah, it's still there. Oh. And oh. actually, interestingly enough, because today we so frequently talk about themes about tomorrow. At the time, this was the first time that the theme of tomorrow and the future of tomorrow was actually being used as a theme for a fair. And the first time. Franklin D. Roosevelt addressed the nation on television, the first nationally televised event. Like, this was all about the future, and really... It was the beginning of TV being televised. Yeah, and it was a way of... This country had just gone through the Depression. It had gone through a war. It was a way of, like, trying to uplift Mm -hmm. people. This is where Wayne meets William Burton. And William Burton, who was Patsy's father, he was born William Bernheimer, and he changed the name to Burton. This was during World War I, and this was both to avoid anti-Semitism and also, strangely, to avoid the anti-German sentiments that were held by America during World War I. So it's clear that William Burton was a gay man pressured by a straight society into a marriage with Lucille Wolfe. And the marriage was really one of convenience 
They were both Jewish. It was like the logical person to marry, but it was not a marriage of love. It was a very unhappy one. And I would think that was something that wasn't super uncommon back then, given the norms. Right. Well, my grandmother actually had an arranged marriage. She became pregnant with my mother when she was 17, and she ended up marrying a psychiatrist, George Guilfoyle, who was in the closet. And they kind of had this incredible arrangement because she was a beatnik, and she wanted to sleep with men and women. And he wanted to sleep with men, and then they kind of still loved each other. They loved each other, but they had this arrangement. They had this marriage, and he was the father to my mother. I think that was very common. It was like that people had arrangements like that, and we see that in this case, which is really interesting. Because if you were outed as homosexual lesbian, I mean, right? You're talking about lose your apartment, Mm -hmm. lose your job. Oh, you you could go to jail for ten years, right? So there, I mean, there was every good reason to have an arrangement. There was no other way. There was no other way. So it was like and sexuality was all over the roadmap still it existed but you had to get married and have you be you had to present a normal face to the public right interestingly though also my grandmother later married my mother's boyfriend who lived with us (laughs) so so that's another that's another parallel to this and he became my grandfather until i was 18 so I never realized how bizarre that was until I was older. It's like, that's kind of strange. William Burton has this sort of bearded marriage with Lucille Wolfe, and that results in Patsy Burton. And they both absolutely doted on their daughter. They really seem to adore her. They kind of made up for the fragile family situation by spoiling her rotten with material things. Right. So the family lived in New York City and also in Europe. They lived in Paris. I read also that sodomy was made legal in Paris in 1791. Oh, you So, yeah, so, like, no one, like, I think William Burton was slightly, like, more comfortable there, you know, with, <laughs> so the, with his lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. Paris is great. Yeah, it, 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 hurrah. Yeah, <laughs> hurrah exactly. For, hurrah for him in Paris. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think he also attempted a career not very successfully as a painter in Paris as well. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That's... It's kind of like an obligation. If you go to Paris, you have to attempt to be a painter. Yeah, no, you know, it's true. <laughs> and at the time, sodomy, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it, all it all goes together. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, vive la sodomy. Okay, an intimate relationship developed between William and Wayne. William was attracted to Lonegrim because of his looks and sex appeal. He showered Wayne with gifts and introduced him to the trappings of a wealthy cosmopolitan New York life. And Wayne fell in love with the lifestyle. And like, actually, they would meet at the Ritz and like William would shower Wayne with gifts. But the fact that they were like hooking up at the Ritz, I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, he just showered him with everything. I mean, it was, he just completely introduced him to a life he had never seen. I mean, mean, you're talking real wealth. I think at the time they had like millions of dollars back in the 40s. And so you're really talking in 60, 70 million dollars in today's money. Back then, that was a very small group of people. Now it's like 
if you win the lottery, you're a billionaire. There's like a billionaire a week now. Right. Back then, it was like very, very a small circle of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And And they they all knew each other. And and the Burtons were German-Jewish. They were kind of like the elite in the Jewish population in New York because then you had like the Eastern European Jews but they were also were very comfortable kind of in wasp society too. They were just like high society New York people, basically. And they worked you know? very hard to assimilate. There still was anti-Semitism at that time, but they had enough money, three mansions that they kind of bounced back and forth between each other. Yeah, and what's so strange, and this goes back to your family roots a little bit, Melanie, is that through William, Wayne met his daughter, Patsy, and William actually encouraged the relationship between Wayne and his daughter. And strangely, like Patsy's stance was, if he's good enough for my father, he's good enough for me. I mean, maybe it was just speculating, but maybe the father was madly in love with him. It was just something they talked about. Like, I want to have a grandson and you should be married we want to go all over New York doing it, but we need to work this out. And then it was a way of keeping it in the family. It's so yeah, it creepy could, it, in a way, it but could, it's so... It could be. It's, like, it's almost like you get the sense that the father wants to keep Wayne close. Yeah, like they're secretly <laughs> married. See, I think that he this. just brought around this charming, handsome Sorry. guy, and she just went Google over but him and didn't a, really understand... Mm-hmm. Patsy herself was very, she was very pretty, very attractive. Sure, but that doesn't mean it's not like he was bringing home this this guy to his dumpy daughter who was rich. But didn't she have many lovers too? Oh, yeah. So it seems like an arrangement to me. Like they just worked out how to have it be normal, like on the outside for the newspaper. Okay, but okay, there's yes. too much passion. Yes, that. that's oh, okay. true. That's but true. now here's a little <laughs> noir angle that comes into it. For William would die of a heart attack. Patsy's father would die of a heart attack soon after. So already super wealthy, Patricia Burton stood to inherit millions more. So Wayne loved the money and the cafe society lifestyle. Whether he loved Patsy is another matter. And so their first date was at the Stork Club. And the Stork Club was really the place to be seen. The rich and the beautiful dressed to the nines sipping champagne cocktails. Green turtle soup and lobster were mainstays on the menu. Patsy was dubbed a celebutante, famous for being famous, but a bit of a wannabe as well. Certainly she and Wayne were fixtures at the Stork, and the equally glamorous El Morocco. Elmo, as it was known, boasted huge golden palm trees, cactuses painted white, and Moroccan grills on the wall. Patsy and Wayne were fixtures at the club, but eclipsed by regulars with more star power, such as Clark Gable, Cary Grant, and Rita Hayworth. Sadly, it was not until her murder that Patsy would get the fame and attention she craved so much. And it's interesting just to think about the lifestyle that these cafe society people live. We're talking about going out every night, 9, mm-hmm. 10, 11 at night, dinner, drinks, dancing, coming home at 6 o'clock in the morning, sleeping till 1 or 2 in the afternoon. Sounds great. <laughs> just, yeah, resting, doing it all over again. I mean, this was a completely alternative way of life. 
one not conducive to work, not conducive to parenting, not conducive to... You had to have to, a lot of money to live you this life. You had to have a lot of you know? money and yeah. you had to have a lot of help mm-hmm. yeah. to live this I way. Mean, it, and she it did. It seems like a scene in The Great Gatsby. It's it very, like very much so. Li- right? I just yes. get the yeah. visual of... Exactly. And, and, and the golden palm trees. Like, it's so... I think it's moment, probably yeah. very similar to mm-hmm. how F. Scott and Zelda live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and lots of alcohol. Lots, yeah, of, lots, lots of alcohol. Of, lots of, I think cocaine was really big then too. Like uh, people don't realize that. But I think you're right. Yeah, and like it's probably it, just it not was written a about thing. Yeah, in that period, people were doing like the party scene was very over the top. I'm sure, especially for the Fitzgeralds. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Wayne had every intention of marrying Patsy. Patsy's mother, Lucille, smelled a rat in Wayne and opposed the relationship and tried to stop it. Wayne and Patsy eloped and got married in Las Vegas at the hitching post. <laughs> I love that image of them like driving through the desert with her her with a scarf on, like ha ha ha. But it also kind of shows how out of the norm this marriage was, because here she is a debutante, or extremely one of the wealthiest debutantes there is, running off to the hitching post to get married. Not having the big St. Pat's wedding that she should have had. Yeah, or but at, the father was for it and the mother was against it. Yes, but the father different. had passed away. Oh, right. So it's right. so, like the mom was really, right. she was really kind of like a matriarchal mm, kind okay. of woman right. too, I think. She yeah. also knew it was her husband's lover. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> it's, co- it's complicated. Yeah, it is like complicated. You, you complicated. just don't understand, Mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come on, Mom. He's a great choice. Yeah. He, he's nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's really nice, Mom. He's really nice. <laughs> you don't realize how nice he is, Mom. Right, right. <laughs> So as much as a flash-in-the-pan marriage satisfied Patsy's rebellious streak, she and Wayne had an unhappy marriage. And again, it's like one really gets tripped up by the optics in this. Like we were saying, they're so good-looking. They're out at the stork club. She's got a mink on. They've got beautiful places in New York. And it's just, there's nothing behind it. Like, he was bisexual, probably gay. She was kind of damaged i think from her childhood and their marriage is just like this weird echo of her parents marriage it's like the next generation well i don't think there was really anything between them i mean if you take away all the parties and booze mm-hmm. what do they have yeah yeah so in 1942 they had a son named william and he was really primarily cared for by nannies which was duriger of that that as time. She, as and she had, was as she was and um and I actually found the, it's kind of spooky, but I found the birth announcement oh, for wow. William. And it's in this sort of like gossip column. And it says, Jane Lonergan's Patsy Burton expect Sir Stork, which is obviously <laughs> a reference to the stork carrying the baby. It's a reference to the stork male, club. Right. So the Lonergans lived off Patsy's trust fund and she was due to inherit a great deal more from her grandmother when she died. They lived a life of leisures and parties with no cares to speak of, and neither spends much time with their son. Wayne has no job, and the marriage is a mess. And this causes contention. I mean, even though she has money, it was pretty much looked down upon for 
him to be living off her money with absolutely no direction. So this causes a lot of friction in the marriage. I'm sure the mom, Lucille, is in the background going like, what is this, like, yeah. you know, lazy, I told you, right. you know. Like, he, has, you know. he has no direction, and he pretty much just sits around drinking and playing cards. He's a kept man. He, he was, was a kept man, man which, yeah. you know, at that time. I'm sure he was happy about that. Well, he didn't seem to have much problem with it. You think, how could the marriage not be a mess? Yeah. So after Pearl Harbor and America joined the Allies in World War II, Wayne was drafted by the American military. And so he uses his homosexuality to get out of it. That was even given a name. It was called a 4F. It was a ruse. It was like being an excuse was, a, was an excuse many men used as a way of dodging the draft. So in 1943, after Patsy and Wayne separated, so again, they've been married barely two years, right? When did they get married? Right. I just think it's so weird that he uses, he plays with his sexuality so much. Like he uses it to get out of the military. So I actually read one account of that that was different, that he would have wanted to be in the military because it would have cemented that they were still married, that he could have remained married, but the mother maybe drop that he was homosexual oh interesting so she yeah. kind of like dropped the dime on yeah, him and to then keep that him okay. there and then it would inevitably fall apart i don't know oh I just maybe read that you somewhere. might be right i thought he was using it to dodge the draft that, like that actually guys, makes a little more sense yeah it does it does so in 1943 after patsy and wayne separated wayne decided to move back to canada and he enlisted in the Royal Canadian Air Force, which actually goes to your theory a little bit more. Like, he wasn't opposed to being in the military. I had always wondered that. So, yeah, anyways, that, maybe, that you know, does make more yeah. sense. And I think he's clearly looking for some type of direction. Definitely. It must have bothered him somewhat that, you know, the marriage is falling apart. He's a cat man. Like, what's he going to do now? He's looking for some, some form of direction. So, and although Patsy allows him to visit New York to see his son, William, she also tells him he's cut out of the will, which I'm sure he was not happy about that. You know, I'm sure he wasn't thrilled with his lifestyle downgrade, right? And the big money yeah. is actually from the grandmother, who doesn't, I think, die until 1954. But that's where the big, big, big money is going to come from. You're right, right. I think it also, I mean, Patsy, he was replaceable to her. She was pretty soon out at the store again with other men, dressing up, going out. She had nannies taking care of William at home. So she was like a party girl. She was. Yeah, she definitely know. wasn't winning mother of the year. I'm no, sorry to say. No. She didn't no. spend much time with her son. But I mean, that was kind of how people in that class dealt with their children at that time. It was like, come see me between four and six. She reminds me. Have you watched The Crown? Yes. A little bit of Princess Margaret. Yes. yes. Right? Like with, exactly. where she's kind of going mad and there's no attachment to the children but she's partying every yeah it's yeah. just like she yeah. also reminds me of, of a case that we did the woodwards where it's the same thing they were very good looking splashy couple she was like such a social climber you um, know in new york and like all the kids are with nannies and they're partying with like the duchess of windsor like yeah. it's just really like Seen, seen and be seen kind of. Thing. Also, it's interesting, too, because, like, back then, as a woman, you were just expected to go to school and get married. That was kind of your, you're just supposed to have children and be married. Even if you were in society, if you weren't 
an actress, that was kind of what you did. Right, all your power and all your... Yeah, it was like... Right, but, or through men. But, like, normal women that weren't in society would have been housewives. Right. But for women in society, like, what do you do? You don't even have the role of a, a quote-unquote housewife. Right. You know, you have no role. <laughs> interesting although patsy to her credit did work a little bit for the war effort she volunteered Mm -hmm. like she wasn't he really sat on his butt but she was she was involved in more more things like that so the weekend in question in october in the weekend of the 24th 1943 wayne is in new york city and he's visiting his son so he stays actually at 79th Street in the apartment of a really wealthy banking friend. His last name is Harges. So they have dinner and his friend has to leave, but he allows Wayne to stay in the apartment. And he's arranged a date for Wayne with this sort of young, really beautiful starlet. Right. If you can imagine, so Wayne shows up, I think, at the... Is it, Wayne shows up at the El Morocco. Then Patsy, if you remember, she has a date with... Gabellini, the older playboy Italian guy. So they all show up at El Morocco. I'm sure Wayne saw Patsy with him. And who knows, like, who knows what transpired? We don't really know what happened in terms of jealousy or what have you. So that weekend, like we said, Wayne goes and visits his son, but then they go out to the El Morocco. And he's actually dressed in his Royal Canadian uniform. Yes, he, he, when he takes out the starlet, he's dressed in his uniform. She goes out with Gabellini. She returns home at 6.30 in the morning. He walks her to her apartment and says goodnight. And then the next morning, come midday, she hasn't been heard from again. Exactly. She's been out for 16 hours. So your cocaine theory <laughs> kind of makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? And at first like they think a, you know. she's just sleeping it off. But as it's three, four, five, six, they start to get alarmed and they call Lucille. And, and that's Patsy's mother. Right. So she's called. Key. Yeah, she's yep. called. And then somebody eventually comes over and breaks the door down. And they find Patsy bludgeoned to death. And so the police obviously are called to this scene. And what's odd is that the maid, that Patsy's maid, the nanny, hasn't seen anybody come or go during the day. But then they talk to a German governess who was living in the upstairs apartment, and she tells the police that she had heard screams, but she's also a German immigrant right at the height of World War II. She was like, she was not going to talk to anybody kind of about this. But obviously Wayne becomes a person of interest as so often the husband or ex-husband does, right? They find out that he returned to Canada without his uniform. Maybe, Laura, you can talk a little bit about Yes, <laughs> da, 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 da. The truth is in the clothing. Yes, exactly. So they find out that Wayne has returned to Canada, and the New York police immediately get in touch with the Canadian police and have Wayne picked up. And Wayne is picked up and held um, in Canada for, until the New York police can come and question him. And Wayne is actually quite cooperative. He doesn't ask for an attorney. He agrees to talk to them. Again, if you're ever questioned by the police, ask for an attorney. Don't just sit with them. <laughs> yes. There's one thing you take away one from our podcast. One thing you take away yeah, from it. Yeah. Um, 
So it's like initially, although Wayne like denied having anything to do with Patsy's murder, eventually he gives them a very detailed confession. Well, let's back up for a second and say that his first alibi is that first they ask him, why don't you have your uniform? And he says, well, after my night out, I met a young American soldier in the streets of New York, and we were going to have a homosexual tryst. So I invited him back to my friend's apartment, and we started to have a tryst. But then we got into an argument, and he punched me and stole my uniform and my watch. Once again, he's using, like, homosexuality as kind of his excuse and an alibi. It's kind of weird. Yeah, it is. Why would you use that? Why not use the woman? And then another weird thing is, why would an American soldier want a Canadian uniform? But also the watch is weird. The watch? Well, he's missing his watch. Because, like, I understand the uniform could be covered in blood, but the watch... The watch is weird because what happened to the watch? Why not just say you were mugged? But it doesn't explain the uniform. He has to admit to some kind of like shedding of the uniform. And then it's stolen by this American soldier. It doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, it's just a bizarre alibi and makes him more of a person of interest. And Lonegrim would deny this throughout his life that he was involved. And the Toronto police picked Wayne up on the 25th and... On the same day that he's picked up, Patsy's death announcement is in the Toronto paper. Not as Wayne being a suspect, but just that she had died. So he goes, he he even agrees to extradition. They don't even have to fight extradition. He agrees to go back to New York. The police accompany him back to New York. And he continues to deny that he murdered Patsy. And... Strangely enough, and Sarah and I discussed this, and maybe you have some thoughts on this, Melanie, too, what actually really leads to his confession, the papers are picking up on this. This is becoming a big case. and Particularly the gay angle. Particularly the gay. I mean, that's very salacious. Mm -hmm. And like we said before, they were the members of Cafe Society, and some of the reporters, like Dorothy Kilgallen, who are reporting on this case, actually socialized with them when they were going to all these clubs. And what really starts to bother him is him being presented as a pervert in the papers. (laughs) So he decides to confess because he would rather be known as a murderer than a pervert. Interesting. But also I think in those circles, being a homosexual probably was not abnormal. But to the common people, the people that read the papers, that's very much look down it's very bizarre right. strange middle america canada you know you're like it's not okay in that time right. to do that yeah unquote. like for example there was a guy who was like a gossip columnist jerome beale i think is now i'm not getting the right name but he was openly gay like mm-hmm. with his partner but you're right i think in that cafe society it was probably like oh well, what you know and and then, but yeah, the very public, normal. The public yeah. writ large. I less mean, we even we still see it a little bit where, like, you know, that's New York or yeah, in the heyday, the the time. But still, on the coast, it's a lot more lenient. And then you go into the middle of the country, or you go, the, things change and become a little more conservative as you travel. I just thought it was from the coast. Pretty fascinating that he'd rather give. That's still true today. Yeah, it's still true today. I think, but I think for him, 
maybe it was a wake-up call because suddenly he's confronted with this massive amount of press that is reaching middle America. Yeah, and then know? and then let's drill down a little bit on what that can when he finally confesses. Right. What is that confession? Right. I, yeah, and I'll get into that. I just think it's pretty interesting that he'd rather confess to murder than be viewed as a pervert in the media. But and what the confession is is, you know, he basically confesses to a crime of rage. You know that he didn't intend to kill her. Which I believe. I think it was an argument that got out of hand. I mean, he would later retract this confession and say it was coarse, but there was so much detail in the confession. I think that it's been proven that it was a good confession. He said the uniform had been thrown in the East River in a duffel bag and weighed down by a weight. And that's where the watch was as well. That was never found. Why the watch? Sorry, uh, <laughs> I guess it had blood all, uh, all in or, it. Or maybe it was, oftentimes <gasps> oh, a watch is broken and it, it stops at the time of the murder. Interesting. Like, like in the yeah. struggle, it could have stopped at whatever, That's 1030. You know, yeah. Right, and yeah. now one of Sarah's favorite little Hollywood old school factoids about how Wayne Lonegrin covered up the scratches oh, oh, on his face. Uh, yes, so like I mentioned, he was staying with his banker friend Harges. So Harges finds this Max Factor concealer, like makeup. A compact. A compact. First, he was like, oh, it's maybe my maids. It wasn't the maids. He turns it over to the police. And the police go to every pharmacist. They did some real, like, police work. And they find a pharmacist who says that Wayne Lonergan bought the Max Factor concealer. And the reason why he did was he covered up the scratches on his face that he had gotten during the fight with Patsy. Wow. So, yeah, because the the woman that he had gone out with, Jean, she was the starlet, had said that she hadn't noticed any right. scratches on his face. So Interesting. He, so it happened. So, yeah, they the, he bought this makeup to cover up the scratches. Interesting. Yeah. I thought it was a bit, that's like such a, like, even the the Max Factor, like, I don't know whatever know. happened to Max Factor, but it's such a, like, Hollywood, like, a little, well, yeah, Also, totally. Max Factor, that makeup was specifically very heavy makeup. Yeah, it was like, very it was heavy. Made, yeah. It was made for movies. So the pharmacist picks Wayne out of the lineup, and Wayne would be found guilty of this crime and spend 22 years at Sing Sing and Clinton, which we would become Dannemora Prison in but, New York. But, but even think about Sing Sing. Sing Sing is like you associate Sing Sing with a prison. Do you know what I mean? It's like well, it, it is even a prison. well, of course it's a prison, <laughs> but it's the prison. It's right. the iconic prison. If you're going to go to prison, it's going to be Sing Sing. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's true. You know, it's true. And then things get then this is not the end of the story. Lonegren had his champions. Yes, that's right. But he's released in 1965. He is released in 1965. And one of those champions who followed his case very closely, the big supporter of Wayne's, and that journalist was Scott Young, and that is Neil Young's father. Wow. So he followed this case and thought he was railroaded, and he even helped him and continued to write about him when he got out. Interesting. But he ended up being... After all that, he ended up being with a very famous actress. Barbara Hamilton. Who right? was not not an attractive, and I hope that's not a mean thing to say, but I think we can safely say she was not an attractive woman. They spent their lives together. They did. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. They did, and apparently she was very protective of him. Very yeah. protective. Wouldn't like let anybody say anything mean about and, him. And 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 like the murder was like a black box right. issue. Yeah. No, did but she called him. His nickname was Killer. Did you read that? And she would no. introduce him as, come here, killer. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, that was his nickname. But oh apparently God. it was kind of an off-topic thing to talk about the crime. She did call him killer. Oh, that's Just very you couldn't funny. go further. But <laughs> You couldn't just be like, who did he kill? Yeah, you could no, just be just, like, yo, killer. Yo, killer, come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So we have to ask you, Melanie, are you going to do a piece based on this case? We want to know. Would you do a photo, like? Well, I have my own little set of rules. I always try never to touch on a case that was infamous or known. Oh, so this okay. actually would fall more into the category of something I wouldn't do, but that I love to read about and study and um, kind of one of the driving factors of what I do. But, you know, I have like the Black Dahlia is a very famous one. I I've never touched on that one. Although it's very similar, very it is. period. Yes. It's like yes. very, you know. And the whole man ray mm-hmm. connection and everything yes. like that. That would be, yeah. Completely. And then the, yeah. the doctor who allegedly, they're pretty sure Ho- the doctor. Ho- Hodel, Hodel, Hodel. Did you, Dr. Have you done a story on that? We've well, read, yeah, mm-hmm. we've. He's we've, reached out to us. Yeah. yeah really? Yeah. Wow. Many times, yeah. Well, yeah, because now the son is convinced that his father did it. Yeah, Steve, yeah, yeah, Steve Hodel. We want. Hodel. We'll, we'll definitely do an art. Uh, yeah. yeah, we'll definitely do a piece with him. And we should also just say that Lucille, Patricia's mother, raised their son William, and changed his name. Mm-hmm. So yeah. she changed it back to Burton, and he inherited all that money. And he's seventy-eight today, and we hope he had a fabulous, peaceful life. Yeah, that's well, right. Well, he's actually still alive. We yeah, hope. we think we so. Hope. Wow. We think so. Because this feels like so long ago. Mm-hmm. I right? know. But <laughs> remember, he was, a, he was a toddler when this happened. Yeah. He was a toddler. Yeah. yeah. So we, we hope he's had a really wonderful life. We don't know. And we also want to thank Alan Levine again for his wonderfully detailed book about the Lonergan case. And the title of the book is called The Details Are Unprintable. And it is really a fantastic read. He does just such a great we'll job. We'll post it again. It's t- he yeah. took like a an essay and wrote this whole blog. Wow. And yeah. no movie has ever been made on this. So, such a good, it would be a really good film. Dun, not dun, dun, dun. Well, we're in Hollywood, yet. right? Exactly, we're in Hollywood, right? right? Not yet. You know what? And I just wanted to dedicate this episode to the memory of Raymond Chandler and because he's L.A.'s noir writer and I really, he's really... He really was present for me during this, the, the right, the, you know, just this whole, this whole case. Awesome. Such a noir kind of case. Completely, yeah. Absolutely. It really is. It really is. Well, this has been so super fabulous. I feel like I'm in, I'm on graves. <laughs> <laughs> Loved it. <laughs> All right. Well, well, thank you so much, Melanie, yeah. for thank really you. allowing us into your space and to really allow us to kind of get all this creative juju from her being around you. Yes. <laughs> and it, what's next for you? Um, I'm actually working on a big museum show. I'm in the Biennale in Korea, so that's opening in September. The Korean Biennale in the State Museum. So it's a big, big, big museum. So you're going to go there to Korea? I'm not. I've been to Korea. I did a big show in Korea a few years ago, but I'm not going for this one because the... Um, 
because of the times we're in with COVID. It's pretty strict, especially over there. They're very, very strict, and who knows? Yeah, but my work is going, so I'll be there in spirit. And we're actually in Koreatown in L.A. I love that. Yeah, (laughs) not only that, you're in a building (laughs) that is very noir. And how can our listeners reach you, find your work? So um, I will give you my phone number. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's five. Call me anytime. That's five 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 one two one two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have a website. If you just Google my name, Melanie Cullen, or and it's P U L L E N. It is, yeah. Oh. Or if you just look up crime scenes and girl crime scenes, I'm sure my pictures will. Come we up. will post on our Facebook group, but also we want anyone. Just to have access and, and please check, check out the no, photography. Check out, check I've out been Melanie's. Everybody. It's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I'm amazing. on Instagram. I forgot. You're on Instagram. <laughs> yes, I follow you. You do. <laughs> I think I follow you back. All right, guys, let's wrap it up. All so, right. Goodbye from Hollywood. Goodbye from Hollywood. Murder, murder, murder.